0: Good evening church. It is good to see you. Uh, the 1st of December is a special day for our family because it is uh, the, the anniversary of coming to be with the McDermott Road congregation. So we've been here for five years and I just I have to take this moment to say thank you uh, for putting up with me for five years and I hope that you'll put up with me for many, 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 many more years. Um, I cannot tell you how blessed my family is to be part of this church family and to be a part of what god is doing here and as always on wednesday nights i want to tell you thank you for being here i know that especially uh, for parents that have kids and school and activities and things going on during the week wednesday nights are hard and it's difficult to to be here with everything else that you have going on especially after the time changes and it feels so very late even though it's not as late as it feels but uh thank you thank you for choosing to be part of our midweek Bible study, it is absolutely wonderful that you choose to do that. We are continuing our study of the book of James, and again, this book is so incredibly uh, relevant for for religious people of any generation, in any location, in any culture, but I think especially for ours, because there is this tendency for religious people— to think that religion is primarily something you think about, religion is primarily something you believe, it might be something you debate, it might be something you talk about, but for James, he continues to make the point over and over and over again, religion isn't just what you believe, and it isn't just what you think, and it isn't just what you say, it's what you do. It's what you do. And last week we talked about how James... Starts this this book, starts this message, this sermon, this lesson by saying that pure and undefiled religion before God is what? The visit, the widows and the orphans in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so he says that, and, and he says before that, for them to be, to be quick to hear, listen, and slow to speak and slow to become angry, right? And those sort of introductory points are going to be so important in every point of this series of lessons. He, he tells them, before I even really get into the specifics of what religion looks like, don't be defensive, right? And if anybody tells you, don't get defensive, that, that probably tells you something tough is coming, right? If somebody says, now, now listen, don't get defensive, in the South, we would say, bless your heart, right? Or bless their heart. But that, that's what James is saying, right? He's saying, don't, don't be defensive. Don't, don't be quick to say anything. Be quick to listen. And don't be quick to get angry. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Because if you receive with meekness this implanted word, it's able to save your soul. And so that ought to be a hint ...that something tough is going to come. So he's about to begin to accuse them and convict them of sin. And as we read this, and we we do both, we kind of put ourselves in the first century audience's shoes... ...and that's good and helpful, right, to sort of put ourselves in their shoes but it, it can kind of let us off the hook a little bit too, right? If we just put ourselves in their shoes and say, yeah, man, he was really coming down hard on them. Yeah, they had it coming, I suppose, you know, and, and we just think about his message to them, we can sort of forget that this is also God's message for us. And there is so much that we can learn from what he's saying to them. And just as he says to them, don't get defensive, don't get mad, Don't be quick to say anything or to argue or to say, that's not me, or I don't do that, or you can't make general statements like that, or how dare you, or who do you think you are. Before you say anything, just listen and learn and reflect. And and just as James is saying that to them, God is saying that to us through James as well. And and we need that message as well. Don't don't get defensive. (laughs) Don't, Don't let your first Reaction be to argue, reflect, and say, can I learn from this? Am I guilty of this? Do I need to make changes to my life? And again, as he says in the first chapter, it's not just about hearing it. Because it's one thing to hear it. It's one thing to believe it. It's one thing even to affirm that it's true. But we have to actually go and, and make changes and do something different because of what God is communicating to us through James. So if you have your Bible, we're going to be in James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now, he's going to spend this whole next section talking about what does this look like, this partiality. We could also say favoritism. What is partiality or favoritism. It's to, to favor one person over another or to favor one person and overlook someone else. Especially if the person you're overlooking is a person that actually needs you to look at them. Somebody that actually needs your help. Somebody that actually needs your assistance somebody who actually needs your mercy, somebody who actually needs your love, and you're overlooking the people who need you in favor of someone else, being partial to a certain group of people over another group of people. And he says, don't hold on to favoritism while you hold on to the gospel. And isn't this what we see from the beginning of the church, from the the book of acts the day of pentecost all the way through the book of revelation that what jesus is doing in the world isn't just forgiving people's sins it it is that he is forgiving people's sins but it's also bringing people together together it's not just about Jesus reconciling us to God, our, our vertical relationship. It's also about what Jesus is doing in these horizontal relationships. It's bringing us together into one family. So, from the, the book of Acts, all the way forward to the book of Revelation where we see all of the nations and tribes and languages all gathered around the throne worshiping God. This is the image. This is the picture of what God through Jesus in the spirit is doing in the world is God is bringing together different groups of people. And we have that tendency, don't we, to group ourselves. To group ourselves. We group ourselves by Age. we group ourselves by ethnicity, we group ourselves by language, we group ourselves by socioeconomic dimensions, and we group ourselves, and Jesus is bringing all of these groups together into one family and teaching us to love one another. And so for someone to overlook a certain group, to play favorites with a certain group, to overlook especially those people within the family that most need their love and their mercy and their compassion in favor of or impartiality to a different group of people that is out of step with the gospel. It's interesting that, that James mentions Jesus by name twice in the beginning of the book as he begins James chapter one and verse one and here in chapter two and verse one as he talks about this partiality, because you can't do both. You can't hold on to favoritism and partiality and hold on to Jesus. You can't. If you're going to be a part of what Jesus is doing, then you have to be a part of the reconciliation and the unity and the love for all people and nation and tribe and language and be a part of what God is doing in bringing people together. And so partiality or favoritism is out of step with the gospel of Jesus. And this is what Paul dealt with all throughout his ministry, isn't it? Specifically between what two groups of people? The Jews and the Gentiles, right? The circumcised and the uncircumcised. It was really hard. It was really hard. It was incredibly difficult for these two groups of people to suddenly drop all of the things that had happened in the past and forgive each other and love each other, to, to even share a meal with each other. I, I know when you think about eating pork, because most of us are Gentiles, and so when we think about eating pork, we think pork chops, and we think bacon, and we think ham, and we think, that, that's so wonderful, that, that's awesome, why would anybody not want to eat that? But if you had grown up believing that pork and, and other unclean meats were, were wrong, that it was wrong to eat those things. And there's certain things that we don't think of as necessarily morally wrong to eat, but that we just don't eat, right? Most of us, and we think of certain animals and we think, I wouldn't eat that. Ew, that's disgusting. Why would anybody eat that? And then all of a sudden, now you're one family with people that do eat the things that you think, that's why would anybody eat that? And you have to share a meal and a table with them and figure out how to be family with each other. This was incredibly difficult. And Paul fought this all the time. It would have been so much easier. It would have been so much simpler. It would have been so much more pragmatic to just say, okay, well, we'll have the Jewish churches over here and we'll have the Gentile churches over there. And if you're a Jewish person and you want to follow Jesus, you just worship over there. And if you're a Gentile person and you want to follow Jesus, you worship over here. But that was not an option. Paul would say, over my dead body. Never, Being one family is what this thing is all about. But even one of the very first conflicts in the church, you remember one of the very first conflicts in Acts chapter 6, you had the Hebrew widows. They were Jewish widows that they came from a culturally Hebrew family. They spoke Hebrew. They they kept Hebrew customs and cultures. And then you had Greek-speaking Jewish widows. So, All of these widows were were Jewish, it was just that some of them were culturally Greek and some of them were culturally Hebrew. And apparently in the distribution of food, they were overlooking and playing favorites. They were being partial to the Hebrew-speaking widows, to the culturally Hebrew widows, and overlooking the Greek-speaking widows. And this was creating one of the very first problems in the church. And they had to put a stop to it because favoritism and partiality and overlooking people who are in need in favor of somebody else is not okay, and it's out of step with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he goes on, James chapter 2 and verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you, sit down here in a good place while well, you say to the poor man you stand over there or sit down at my feet now again when we hear this and I'm sure when the first century church heard this when whoever James's audience was when they first heard this I, I'm sure their their initial reaction was to be defensive I don't do that I w- we would never do that. How dare you even bring that up to us, James? Who, who do you think you are? We, we would never do that. We would never play favorites like that. We would never tell a rich person just because he was a rich person that he had a good seat and a poor person just because he was a poor person to have a, a bad... Wait, wait. Be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to get angry. Do do we Do people have the tendency to do this sort of thing? To... Play favorites? To show favoritism? To show partiality towards certain people? In fact, I think it was interesting that the the Greek word that's translated as shabby clothing could also be translated as soiled or dirty clothing. And I've I've literally heard Christians 2,000 years after James specifically wrote this that sort of justify looking down their nose at someone who shows up to worship with shabby clothing or dirty clothing or soiled clothing. James literally says, this is what favoritism looks like. This is what partiality looks like. It looks like playing favorites towards the person who's well-dressed, the person who looks like they're wealthy, the person who looks like they have money, the person who looks like they're well-to-do, and honoring them and dishonoring the person and you say well I don't I don't know about that person and that person's wearing this and I can't believe they showed up wearing that and you know I just don't know who they are or where they came from there's there's all kinds of other ways though that we do this isn't there for 2,000 years that Christian people have continued to show partiality and favoritism in direct rebellion to not only what Jesus taught, but what James is teaching here. Whether it's classism or sexism or racism, showing partiality and favoritism to one group of people over another group of people and saying, these kind of people, I don't, I don't trust people that look like this, or I don't trust people that think like this, or I don't trust people that have this background, or I don't trust people from this ethnicity or that speak this language, or I don't trust people who dress like this or who look like that, or I'm a little bit more suspicious of these people than those people. All of this that is human tendency, this is exactly the sort of thing that James is talking about. And again, again, our natural reaction, maybe our gut reaction, is to say, well, I don't do that, or I would never do that, or I treat everybody well. I, I don't look down on anybody. I, I never play favorites. I'm, I'm kind of sure that James's audience probably would have said the same thing. That they probably said, we would have said, we would never do that, which is why he told them from the very beginning, don't say anything, don't be quick to speak, just be quick to listen. And listen to how important this is. And church, even even maybe, maybe it helps us to look back at the past and look at what Christian people have done. And maybe, maybe just kind of step back and look at it historically. We can look at it in Europe, we can look at it across the world, we can look at it here in the United States over the last couple hundred years. Even what's happened in our own country, in our own churches over the last 60 or 70 years. And how people have shown favoritism and partiality based on language, based on skin color, based on ethnicity, based on class or wealth or clothes. And James is saying you can't have both Jesus and this sort of partiality and favoritism. You can't can't have both you can't do both. You can't overlook people who need your love while at the same time claiming to be a follower of Jesus the Christ. Because what Jesus is all about is reconciliation and bringing people together into one family. Jesus is all about bringing humans into family with the divine, with God, and he's also about bringing humans together with people of other ethnicities, with people of other nations, with people of other languages, with people of other socioeconomic groups, bringing together the rich and the poor, bringing together the Jews and the Gentiles, bringing us all together into one family, not to look down on one another, not to argue and fight with one another, but to love one another and minister to one another. This is the good news. This is the good news. This is the good news that Jesus is breaking down walls. Jesus is breaking down barriers. Jesus is bringing people together. And so there is nothing more out of step with the good news of Jesus than for someone to show up in your assembly and you to give them the impression you don't really belong here. There is nothing more out of step with the gospel. Than the idea that someone would push someone else away and say, because of what you look like, because of how you're dressed, because of who you are, you don't belong here. And James says, if you're going to hold on to the faith of Jesus, you can't be partial. You cannot show partiality. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil Thoughts. I really honed in on that word thoughts this week. Because the the Greek word there is dialogismos. And I I love this word. And I've always loved this word in Romans 14. Romans 14 is the the chapter in in Romans that Paul is talking about. He's talking about opinions. Uh, He's talking about uh, scruples, some translations might say. So he says, welcome each other. But not to argue over opinions or scruples. And the Greek word there again is dialogismos. And it's really about your thoughts, your conclusions, your reasonings. He's not talking about your opinions like blue is the best color in the world or I like pizza better than hamburgers. He's not talking about those kinds of opinions. He's talking about your, your convictions, your conclusions. What you feel like i've 've been really rational and I've thought through this, so he's saying you've become judges with evil thoughts it's like it's like when you have these kind of distinctions and you say rich people over here and poor people over here if you're wearing the right kind of clothes you're okay and you're not wearing the right kind of clothes, you're not okay he's saying you're it's like you're setting yourself up on this the judge's seat and you've You've appointed yourself a judge, and you're, you're drawing these conclusions based on your own reasoning and your own logic. Never underestimate people's ability or our own ability to think logically through to the wrong conclusions, right? We, we can think about saying, well, I think this and this and this, and this must mean this, and A plus B equals C. And we, we think we've reasoned through something, but he says your reasoning Your conclusions are evil and they're wrong because you're making distinctions among yourself. You're drawing lines, you're pushing people away. And so your your judgment, your conclusions, your opinions are wrong. We think about things like racism, racism. Racism is called an ism. An ism is some sort of a, a philosophy or a way of thinking. And back in like the 1700s, there were people that that began to conclude or reason or think through and say, I think humanity is divided into these different races. And these races are, some are superior and some are inferior. And that philosophy and that way of thinking was an ism. This philosophy or this ideology that human beings should be distinguished from one another and divided from one another and that some humans are superior and others are inferior. This is a a philosophy, but it is an evil philosophy. It is a corrupt philosophy. It's just like this kind of partiality. But we're all capable of making those kinds of evil judgments and drawing those evil conclusions and we say well people that dress like this are generally this kind of people or people that look like this are generally this kind of people or I trust these kind of people but I don't trust those kinds of people and he says this kind of judgment where you're sitting yourself on the judge's seat and you're drawing these kind of conclusions it's evil and it's wrong and it has to stop and church we, we, we didn't ask for, I realize that, we didn't ask to be born into the world in which we were born or the, the situation in which we find ourselves where our world, even in our own country, even in our own state, even in our own city and county, the church even can be so very divided because of things that happened a generation before us. But, but can't we see that this is in direct violation? To what James was saying. This is exactly the kind of thing that James is condemning. This kind of philosophy or way of thinking that says, oh, I'm justified in overlooking these people or I'm I'm justified in overlooking those people or I'm justified in discriminating against these kinds of people because well you know it's just logical or I've come to these conclusions he says the conclusions you've come to and the logic you're using isn't godly it isn't spiritual it isn't right it's evil and it's wrong and the evidence is that you have made these distinctions among yourselves. See, this is the evidence that that this is wrong because if it was right, there would be unity and there would be love. And because there's not, it's obvious that there is a problem. Look at verses five and six. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. See, I mean, not only does James sort of, he doesn't just condemn the the favoritism, but he says it it even goes beyond that, because not only are you playing favorites with the rich man, you're dishonoring the poor man, and actually God chose the poor man, God chose those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith. And see, this is a a pivotal part of the gospel that we so often overlook in our prosperous culture in which we live, that God actually chose the last to be the first. The last will be the first. He, he, He announced the kingdom. Jesus announced the kingdom in the Beatitudes by saying, blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who weep and mourn. Congratulations, you're going to be first in line for the kingdom. That this is an upside down kind of kingdom. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he's writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so James tells the, the church that he's writing to, and he says, he says you are dishonoring You are dishonoring the people that God is honoring. You are dishonoring the the favored people. Because those who are poor and those who are hungry and those who are thirsty and those who are mourning and those who are weeping and those who are seen as less in the world are actually greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And you are dishonoring them, whereas you should be honoring them. I, I love this quote from David Lipscomb. This is from 1866. David Litscomb said this, he said, the poor often feel backward in the church because in the corruptions that wealth has brought into the church, it has been so changed that they cannot conform to its customs and they do not feel at home there. This is a wrong feeling. Let's kind of stop there for just a second. You ever known anybody that feels that way? Maybe you felt that way. You've overcome that to some degree because you're here right now, I guess. But there are people that you know, people maybe that are your family or your friends that feel like, I I could never come to church. I don't have the right clothes. I wouldn't fit in. People wouldn't accept me. They wouldn't like me. That's what David Lipscomb was saying in 1866. That's what James was saying 2,000 years ago, saying this should never never happen amongst Jesus' people. A gathering of Jesus' people should never make someone who comes in with dirty or soiled or poor or shabby clothing feel inferior. They, that should never happen. They should never be overlooked. They should never have favoritism played against them. David Lipscomb says, this is a wrong feeling. He says, the church is the especial legacy of God to the poor of the earth. The poor then should, above all others, feel at home in the church, should feel they had special privileges there above all others. It is the rich that are out of their element in Christ's church. They should feel the backwardness, not the poor. that That's exactly the way it should be, right? If you listen to Jesus, and, and we've kind of, we've learned not to listen to Jesus over the years because we've become so familiar with Jesus' sayings and teachings. Jesus said, it's hard. It's hard to get into the kingdom if you're wealthy. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into the kingdom. And we've even like changed Jesus' parable. and We're like, well, maybe there was a gate called the eye of the needle and a camel had, to..." no, no, there was, no, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's really hard. It's really hard. And if you have money and you're comfortable and your life is pretty pretty good, you're going to feel a little bit uncomfortable amongst Jesus' people. And that's what Lipscomb is saying. That's what James is saying. This is who God chose to demonstrate His honor, his love, his power, his glory. He chose the ones that the world looks at as foolish. He chose those that the world looks at as despised. He chose those who are poor in the world to lift them up and to exalt them and say, those are my kids. Those are my children. You say, well, what about the rest of us? Yes, yes, even if you're wealthy, even if you're rich, you too can be God's children. But don't you dare. We should never, ever make someone who feels insignificant in the world feel insignificant here. If anything, it ought to be the exact opposite. Where out there, they get treated as foolish. Out there, they get treated as poor. Out there, they get pushed aside. Out there, they're despised. But in here, amongst Jesus' people, and by in here, I don't just mean in the building, I mean the way Jesus' people treat them on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, we lift them up. And we say, you're special to God, and I want to be with you, and I want you with me, and I want us to be together. I want us to be one family, because this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is bringing together the rich and the poor, Jesus is bringing together the Jew and the Gentile. Jesus is bringing together people of every nation, of every tribe, of every language, bringing us together as one family and turning the value system on its head so that the people that are on the top out there are actually on the bottom here. And the people that are on the bottom out there are on the top in here and that everything is upside down. And that the rich should be out of their element and the poor should above all feel at home in the church. Continuing in verse 6 of James 2, he says, Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And again, I mean, James isn't making a general statement about all rich people, but apparently there was that going on then and there that there were rich people that were taking advantage of the church, that were oppressing the church, that were blaspheming the name of Jesus, that were oppressing the church. They were oppressing their brothers and sisters. And some of these Christians were trying to, like, cozy up to the rich. The, the very people that were oppressing them, the very people that were dishonoring the Lord, the very people that were, that were mistreating them. And, and, and these Christians... Instead of honoring the poor, the people that God honored, they were dishonoring the poor. They were honoring dishonorable people, and they were dishonoring honorable honorable people. They were reflecting the values of the world rather than the values of Jesus. Do we see? And again, I I mean, I, I know it's all become political, and people get, again, defensive about all of this, but I mean, can we look back and can we see things like slavery, things like segregation, Jim Crow laws? Can we see that when Christians supported and participated in this sort of thing, how this is antithetical to the gospel? It's not just that it was a sin. It's antithetical to the gospel. The gospel is about people coming together as one family. And if someone is treated as a slave out there, Then amongst God's people, they're they're not just free, they're honored and loved and cherished. That this is the way that God structured his family to be. That the last be first. But so often Christian people haven't reflected those values. And again, we we can get defensive or we can say, you know what, I think I can learn from this. And I think there's some attitudes I need to change. And I may not be a slave owner, and segregation may not be a thing anymore. And maybe I don't necessarily kick people out or say, You sit in a bad seat because you're poor. But here's a story I heard a long time ago about this church that was in the middle of worship service, and, and this guy came in and he looked, maybe he was homeless, he had a long beard and he had long hair and he was dirty and grimy and, and he, he came in the back and people thought, oh, I don't know what he's doing in here and is he going to make a scene and I don't know who this guy is and we haven't seen him before and they start, you know, kind of thinking and whispering to each other and, and then the guy kind of wanders around and can't find a seat and so he, he comes up the middle aisle and people are, you know, just obviously agitated and irritated a little bit. Why is this guy, what's he going to do? Is he going to make a scene? And and then he just sits down right in the middle, right up front in the the aisle. And people are just like, I cannot believe the audacity of this guy. Who does he think he is? And an elder gets up and starts making his way over there. And they think, good, finally, there's an elder. He's going to take care of this. He's going to tell this guy to to go find a different seat or, or just leave altogether. And instead, the elder comes down and sits down on the ground beside him that's what we ought to do that's what we ought to do and we can all learn something from this verse 8 if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture you shall love your neighbor as yourself you are doing well but if you show partiality you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors the whole law can be summed up in this love your actually you're convicted you're the one actually on trial you, you think that you're making distinctions and judgments and saying, this is a good person, this is a bad person, but it's actually you that's on trial, and you are convicted by the law because you're violating the law. He says, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. He says, You've failed to keep the law. You pat yourselves on the back as religious people, but you're actually violating the very heart of the law because you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I wish we could spend longer on this, but we have to go. The law of liberty, that when you obey the law of liberty, loving your neighbor as yourself, it actually sets you free. This is a law that doesn't bind you. It's a law that sets you free. It's a law of liberty, that the more you operate in this way of loving your neighbor as yourself, the more you receive love in return. The more you show mercy, the more mercy is shown to you. But if you fail to show mercy, and by mercy, mercy means compassion. It means caring for those in need. And if you fail to show mercy, then all you'll receive is judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy brings blessings to the one who gives it and to the one who receives it. When we show mercy to one another and we care for the people who most need our care, we care for the people that that need our love and compassion and mercy, When we show mercy to them, it's not only a blessing to them, it's a blessing to us. And when we fail to extend mercy, when we instead give judgment and criticism and say, no, I I don't think so, I don't think you're the kind of person that I want, and, and we draw those lines and make those distinctions and make evil judgments, then we're actually bringing judgment and condemnation upon ourselves. Father God, I am am humbled before you. And Father, I confess that I have made evil judgments, drawn incorrect and unloving and unmerciful conclusions about my brothers and sisters. And Father, I ask for forgiveness. And I ask, Father, that, that all of us who have shown partiality might learn to love our neighbor as ourselves, might learn that mercy triumphs over judgment. Father, we want mercy from you. We want forgiveness from you. We want love from you. We want compassion from you. And Father, in anticipation of those things and because of the, the fact that you have extended those things to us in Jesus, let us extend those to one another. Let us be loving and compassionate and merciful to one another and to remember that mercy triumphs over judgment. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church.